you have your Bibles, uh, turn in them to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're continuing our uh, work through this uh, Gospel as we learn about Jesus and why God sent him and what he has come to do. Uh, just a sort of reminder or a way to sum up how we have been thinking and what we crossed last week was that there are really two kingdoms, there are only two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. And those worlds are in conflict. And what we have for us in Mark, and certainly the Gospels, is the impact of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world of mankind. It, in, in some ways, is a fulfillment or what was looked at um, in Daniel chapter 7. When we read this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancients of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so there's conflict that is taking place between these two kingdoms as the kingdom of God um, invades this world and begins to overturn and defeat the kingdom of darkness. As we consider this text before, some of it might be a little strange to you. Uh, some of it might catch you a little bit off guard, and you might be thinking in your head, well, this really is not the stuff of the world in which we live today. This is really a description of the second century BC, and we've really learned a lot since then. We've grown a lot since then. Uh, I want you to know I believe this wholeheartedly, that not only is it an accurate description of the world of mankind back in Jesus' day, but it is an accurate description of our world and of our need today. And as we look at this text, we're going to frame it in a day in the life of Jesus. It's a significant day, the way that Mark puts it together. And as you know, from time to time, days matter to us. We will say to something, that day was one of the biggest days of my life. And we reference a, a 24-hour period or a waking time. Sometimes we'll ask somebody, how was your day? And we're looking for a recounting of that day. We're looking for some response to what did they do that day and what did they learn that day and who did they meet with that day. And so in the same way, Mark gives us a particular day in the life of Jesus. I'm not suggesting it's a typical day, although it very well may be. You read the life of Jesus and his days were packed with all kinds of activity and all kinds of uh, questions and contests and conflict. But I just want to look at this as a particular day that Mark explains to us and describes for us in his gospel. And it starts this way in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching there. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together there at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its description of this particular day in the life of Jesus. Help us to make sense of it in a right way and help us to think rightly of our times in view of this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we see as this day started is morning, and they're at the synagogue as usual. Saturday morning at the synagogue was not a random event in the life of Jesus. It was his habit. It was his custom. As Luke tells us in another place, as usual, Jesus went to the synagogue. The fourth commandment was clear. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." This was a Sabbath day in which Jesus was honoring the commandment of his Father. It was a whole day. It was a holy day. It was a day that made up a one in seven pattern. One day of every seven was a day of rest. It was a gift from God to humankind. John Piper notes that the Sabbath is a way of remembering and expressing the truth that God is our creator and deliverer and sanctifier. We are dependent on him for all we have in the world, for our deliverance from enemies, and for our holiness. He has indeed designed our work, but our work neither creates, nor saves, nor sanctifies. For these we depend on the blessing of God. All things are from him, and through him, and to him. Unless we ever forget this and begin to take our strength and thought and work too seriously, we should keep one day in seven to cease from our labors, and to focus on God as the source of all blessing. I see no reason that we as God's people ought not to keep one day in seven today. So we read here that Jesus entered into the synagogue in Capernaum. A synagogue was a place where 10 or more men, older than 13 Jewish men, could meet. There's a picture of this synagogue up behind me, and that's one that's still in Capernaum today. That's from the 4th or 5th century. Uh, supposedly there's one underneath that as well. But it gives you at least a small glimpse of a place that they would gather together and meet in. Uh, 
And so imagine that as Jesus entered into the synagogue, he began to teach. And imagine having the word of God being taught by the author of that word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word, or the word was with God, and the word was God. Here is the very author of that word opening the word and explaining it clearly, perfectly, with absolute truth. And as Jesus would say in another place, as men would teach, you say this, but I say this. No wonder there was astonishment amongst those who were listening. Never before had they heard one open the scriptures in this way. Never before had they heard one explain things so clearly. Unlike the scribes, Jesus taught them as one who had authority. He taught the living word of God. The scribes talked big, but they were hypocrites. And Jesus says in one place, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with, with, with one of your fingers. In other words, you say one thing and you do another thing. But the life of Jesus matched perfectly what he said and what he taught, which gave it such authority. They preach, but they do not practice, Jesus says in another place. Jesus taught that his teacher, teaching flowed from Scripture, not from tradition. Some of you would be familiar with Matthew 15 and Mark 7, where Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So Jesus spoke truth because Jesus was the truth. And Jesus explained the scriptures that he had himself spoken and given, which the Holy Spirit recorded through men. And just as that was beginning, though, you might have heard that uh, there of road rage. Well, here is church rage. And in the course of my ministry, I've probably been involved in two or three situations like this where all of a sudden there is an explosion in the church by an individual. And there was among those that were gathered in the synagogue that particular Saturday morning, a man with an unclean spirit. That is saying a man who was demon-possessed. And he made his presence known. It said he cried out with a loud voice. Now, what we don't know is, was this the first time that this man ever attended synagogue? Or was he a regular attender at synagogue, but never before had been challenged or pushed in such a way that the demon that was possessing him would react in this particular way? Remember, there's a battle of two kingdoms taking place. And Jesus has just begun teaching, and he's exposed the word of God and the kingdom of God. And in fact, uh, when he opens the scripture in one place, he opens it up to Isaiah, and he says um, that, that the person now who is here to, de or to deliver the, 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 the captives and to give uh, sight to the blind, that is me. And so there is this conflict now that is exposed in this synagogue, and this battle is being played out. You know, don't you, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces and spiritual um, realms in dark places and heavenly places. And I don't doubt for a moment that these kind of things still take place in the churches of God around the world, in the country. 
And there are those who probably are oppressed by a spirit that have attended this assembly from time to time. Those that have messed with dark things, those that have been exposed to spiritual realities and, and Ouija boards or seances or, or the places of darkness and, and, and have opened themselves and exposed themselves to unclean spirits. I have witnessed church rage before, as I said. And sometimes it is the truth of God's word that finally just explodes in somebody's heart with anger and fury. A few things to think about here. The demon was manifest through this man. We have saw this back in Genesis chapter 6, verse uh, uh, chapter 6, in the first four verses, five verses there, of our understanding of the intersection of the demonic world with the, with the human world. And this demon speaks to Jesus. He says, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. That for me is fascinating. This demon recognized the humanity of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, the town of Jesus, the place where Jesus was, grew up. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice that the man is possessed by an unclean spirit. That is singular. But here he says, what have you to do with us? He's referencing a whole host of spiritual forces that are at work trying to destroy the kingdom of God and at battle with the kingdom of God. Have you come to destroy us, this spirit says? Well, absolutely, Jesus had come to do that. The spiritual world knew that this day was coming. We talked about this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where we read there of the word that God spoke there to, uh, to the fact that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so this cosmic battle, this spiritual battle was anticipated. And in fact, with the entrance of Christ into the world, it began to take on reality. John explains to us in one place the reason the Son of God appeared was to do just that, destroy the works of the devil. And then this unclean spirit also then says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How did the demon know that? How did the unclean spirit know that other than the fact that he was aware of the eternal Christ? He was aware of those spiritual realms. He was aware of the eternal reality of Christ and had witnessed his creator, at some point in creation. And he says he is the Christ, the Son of God. It's fascinating to me that out of the mouth of an unclean spirit is what John is wanting to convince the people of. That Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. What the demon knew and believed is what John is wanting to convince you and I of. That Jesus is the man from Nazareth, but he is also the eternal Son of God. The demons know this. Do you know it? And then we see the power of God here. We've already witnessed the authority of God as he spoke. They were blown away by the clarity and by the power and the precision that he spoke and explained the words of God. And now he is about to confront this unclean spirit. And there's no pitched battle 
There's no sort of foolishness or silliness that takes place. There's no seesaw. There's no twist and turns. Uh, the outcome of the confrontation is never in doubt. It is swift and it's sure. And the authority of Jesus is made manifestly clear as he rebukes this unclean spirit. And then he commands it, be quiet. And then he commands it, come out. And it came out. The unclean spirit convulsed him and shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. And in my study yesterday, I wrote in my notes, Hallelujah, that's my king. He has power over the forces of darkness. In another place this morning, I read, if I drive out demons, Jesus saying, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. This was evidence that God's king was now here on earth. This was evidence that the kingdom of God was now beginning to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And so John brings these morning uh, events to a conclusion. And at the conclusion, the people are astonished. They're astounded as, as, at his authority. They're astonished at his preaching. They're amazed. They're just, they're just full of just, wow, what just happened? Loved ones, Jesus is the same today as he was then. And were something like this to happen on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning here, and I pray often that we would experience the power of the presence of God in our midst. I would love to be in your car as you drove home after church talking with your family, trying to make sense of what just happened. How did that go? How do you explain the power of God? I would love to be a fly at your dinner table and hear the conversations as you try to articulate your responses to the moving of God in our midst as a people gathered together. How would you process such a thing? Then we go from the synagogue to the home. Lunch at Peter's home. Such a synagogue battle, and sometimes wrestling with spiritual realities can be exhausting. Some of you know that. And so they immediately make their way to the home of Peter and Andrew with James and John. And Simon and Andrew share a home together, obviously, and uh, Peter's wife is part of that home as well. And as they get into the house, they realize that Peter's mother-in-law was not doing well. She's contracted a fever of some sort. Maybe not life-threatening, but certainly debilitating. And so they tell Jesus about her at once. I think, why do they tell Jesus? Why don't they go get the doctor in town or something? But immediately they say to Jesus, Peter's mother-in-law is not well. And they had concluded that Jesus is able to do something. That remember, Jesus' ministry had been going on before John begins his story of uh, his account of Jesus in Galilee. They would have heard about Jesus' power and about his healing. But they knew that the king was here. And I was thinking of that song as I was sitting in my study this week. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear these burdens alone. And they clearly knew that if anybody could help, Jesus could help. And I love the compassion of Jesus as it's described here. So he went to her. He went to her. He reached out his hand and he grabbed her hand and he picked her up 
And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. What amazing compassion. What amazing love. What amazing carefulness of Jesus. Can you imagine the joy that they shared the rest of the afternoon? After the meal, sharing about the day's events, talking with Jesus, talking amongst themselves. Do you know what happened? Did you see what happened in the synagogue? Can you believe what Jesus was saying? And that guy, that guy that was there, do you see what Jesus did in talking about that and trying to understand it amongst one another? And then Peter's mother-in-law walking around and serving them, and she's rejoicing and full of joy that God had healed her. And I think, what an afternoon. And isn't that how our afternoons ought to be often on the Lord's Day when we go home? Rejoicing in what we've heard and in what we've sung and in what we've seen. Talking amidst one another about how God has moved and worked in our midst. Certainly a great way to spend the Lord's Day telling of what God has done. And so they go from the synagogue to the home. And now it's evening in Mark chapter 1, sundown at Peter's home. After their time of rest in the afternoon, certainly according to the word of God, the fourth command, Mark interjects this note that his fame spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. It partly could have been as people left the synagogue and went to their homes for lunch. Maybe they passed people and they told about what had happened. Certainly news of Jesus' uh, work already and uh, other places was beginning to be known. It says, but when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed and the whole town assembled at his door. The time stamp matters here. When evening came. See, the synagogue and lunch at Peter and Andrew's home were on a Sabbath day. And a Sabbath day was marked from evening to evening. So the evening of Friday to the evening of Saturday. And there were incredibly strict rules that determined how people could live and what they could do on the Sabbath, how far they could walk, who they could walk with, what they could carry. And so clearly nobody wanting to break any of the Sabbath laws and get into trouble with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, we made it at home. And it's probably like they were, they were just full of this anxiousness as they watched the sun finally go down. Now! And it said they all started to just make their way to Simon and Andrew's home. At this time, the population of Capernaum is estimated at about 1,000 to 1,500 people. Whether it's hyperbole or not that the whole town gathered, I, I don't see any reason why to say it is hyperbole. It just says the town was just caught up with Jesus and with his authority and with his power. And it says they were bringing to him the sick and the demon-possessed, all who were sick and all who were demon-possessed. And I stopped and sat for a little while and asked myself, would you be able to identify a demon-possessed person? It's fascinating to me that, that it's just so casually mentioned that they brought to him the sick and the demon-possessed. They had ways of, of, and it wasn't because they were all just, you know, sort of the Gerizim demoniac type that were ripping chains off and throthing at the mouth and having no clothes on. But there was an awareness that there were those who were oppressed by demons. 
there is an awareness of those who were possessed by demons. And they could see that and they could tell that. And I thought about that and I say, why do we not see that today? Has it because we've written it off as something of the past and of something of a time long, long ago and really this is stuff of myth and this is stuff of the, of the second century and we're so much more brighter than they are now and we have such better explanations for the things that, that result from being oppressed by demons. And we medicalize everything and we, we, we take the spiritual out of everything now. And yet in our world today, there are people that worship Satan. There are people that give their time and their energy to Satan. There are people that ask advice from Satan in various ways. And are we able to identify them? Are we able to say that person is oppressed? That person is in bondage. That person is constrained by a force that's not human. It says, and he healed many who were sick, and he drove out demons. I suspect that all who Jesus touched and healed that evening were delivered or were healed. Luke seems to affirm this when he recounts the same thing, and he says, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any uh, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And I love this. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and he wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The compassion of Jesus. The touch of Jesus. I'm convinced that some of those who were brought to Jesus that evening hadn't felt human touch in years. If they were a leper, they were isolated. They were pushed to the margin of society. And here now is this teacher, this man from Galilee, who touched them and healed their disease. And Jesus didn't shut things down at 9 o'clock either. It's not like he said, well, this has been an exhausting day, and I know there's still a lot more of you out there, but man, I just need a rest. This is what I love about Jesus. You can come to him any time of the day, any time of the night, and you will find a listening, compassionate king. You will find one who will not turn you away. You will find one who says, come back. You will not find one who says, come back tomorrow. You will find one who says, come to me. What's on your heart? And he'll meet our needs. Again and again, it says that he rebuked the demons, not allowing them to identify him. Why might that be? Clearly, demons aren't tasked with the proclamation of the good news. Even the angels aren't tasked with that for the exception, I think, of when the angels proclaimed the birth of Jesus, they aren't the ones that are tasked with going forth and sharing the good news of the gospel. That is for men and women to do, charged by God to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. What a bizarre thing to hear the gospel through demonic-possessed people. Demons would twist the truth. They would make it the truth into something half a truth or something that is darkness. 
We know that in the church, there are some churches through which pulpits and classes, there are doctrines of demons taught. Who would want a demon to try and explain about the Son of God? And demons believe, but it says they don't believe in a saving way. So what good is that of somebody who has no conviction at all about what they believe? This is what makes our gospel and our testimony so impactful when we talk to others because we can say to them, well, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And finally, I was thinking that Jesus didn't keep them silent because he was in God's witness protection program. But he was under God's plan, a plan of redemption. And Jesus would die not one day sooner not one hour sooner, not one minute sooner than what God had determined. And it wasn't up to the demonic realms to rile people up to such a degree that they would thwart the plan of God. And so Jesus shuts them up. Lovelands, you see what John is wanting to show us as he's opening this day up? He's showing us that Jesus of Nazareth is Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, God's coming King. And he's describing how this kingdom is coming to earth. He's describing how this kingdom is beginning to, to take hold in people's lives and the power of this kingdom and the might of this kingdom. Remember last week I said that the kingdom of God is not a geographical kingdom. It's not a kingdom whereby why Jesus would come and overthrow Roman rule or overthrow democratic rule or liberal rule or conservative rule or, or, or some kind of rule, but it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual rule in the hearts and lives of people. And I was thinking of this when it comes to John the Baptist. Remember that John the Baptist was now in prison. And when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of Christ and he sent his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another one? You know, that's bizarre. Because John had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But John still didn't have it right in his head about what God's king would look like. And so he wanted clarification. Are you the king? And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. That is evidence of the kingdom of God. And Mark is recounting for us the evidence which clearly describes and demonstrates that, yes, God's king is here and God's kingdom has come with his king. As Paul says in Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then we have one more part to this day. Morning, before dawn, Jesus is with his Father. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and he made his way to a deserted place 
and he was praying there. Here we get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus again. Some have said, well, why did Jesus need to pray? He was the Son of God. We've been talking about this, that, that yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but as a man, he didn't rely on his divinity. He didn't cast himself on his divinity, but he relied on the things that God had given to him as a man to walk obediently before God. And so as he lived, he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. As, his, as, as he faced temptation, he did so rooted in the Word of God and, and with the Spirit of God in communion with his Father. And so now we hear and read that Jesus prayed. He prayed because he needed to pray. He prayed because he was in communion with his Father. Prayer was indispensable to Jesus the man, as prayer should be indispensable to you and I who are sons and daughters of God. Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed because he needed to pray and he entrusted himself to the Father. Jesus' prayer life is fascinating to work through and think through. Psalm 22, 9 to 10 suggests that there was a relationship that Jesus had even from the womb. There David speaks, and of course Jesus is the fullness of David's words. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. To be sure, there was a development in Christ's prayer life. There was a growth and a maturity in Christ's prayer life. As we see him grow as a young boy and then into manhood and then as he dies on the cross. But Psalm 22, 9 to 10, I believe, finds ultimate fulfillment in Christ, even though it's talking of David. We have already mentioned that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. Some of you as mothers would sing to your children and you'd read to them in the womb. Some of you played music to your children while they were in, their mume, in the womb to calm them. There was comprehension, there was apprehension of some level in the womb. And so Jesus had some apprehension of his Father's care and love, I believe, even in the womb. For you, O Lord, are my hope, the psalmist writes in another place, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have learnt, leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is continually for you. Jesus prayed while he was being baptized. Jesus prayed to his Father, which, by the way, was absolutely unheard of in Jewish culture. It was blasphemous for anyone ever to say that God was their father. And in fact, that is one of the reasons they wanted to kill Jesus. Because he claimed that God was his father and he prayed to him. We find at times Jesus prayed in secret. We find at times Jesus had occasion to pray all night long. Jesus sometimes prayed publicly. We read of the time when Jesus gave his disciples a framework for prayer. In Luke 11, I was reading this morning in my devotions that he was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. It must have been something. I do remember, you know, a time 
back in, in my days at Broadway, and we would have an hour-long pre-service prayer meeting on Sunday nights, always before the service. And there was a particular man who wasn't a regular part of our congregation, but he was connected to our senior pastor through marriage. And when he would come up and he would join us always in this prayer time, and I would just watch him. I was, I was just, I was, I was caught off by the intensity of his prayer, by his devotion to God in fair prayer, by his confidence that God would hear him. And in a much more marked way, I'm sure the disciples, as they just sat at a distance and watched their friend Jesus, their Lord pray, something must have gone on in their head. And they say, that's not the communion that I share with the Father. That's not the relationship that I have with God. That's not how I pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. And so, of course, Jesus then gives them this prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And right after that, Jesus tells them about the need of persistence in prayer and how they need to persist in prayer and how they, if they seek, they will find and if they knock, the door will be open to them. So they were blown away as they watched Jesus pray. Jesus prayed in the spirit. Jesus prayed for Peter. You remember in the time of temptation and testing and Jesus said to Peter, Satan is asked to sift you but I have prayed for you. Or Jesus prayed, knowing that his disciples would hear him in, in order to instruct them. One of the, the, the best, I think it is the best prayer ever recorded is the prayer of Jesus in John 17. You can read it there on yourself as Jesus prays for God to give him back the glory that he left behind when he came to earth, that God would give him the bride that God had promised to give him, that God would unite the people of God in love together. It's, a, it's an astounding prayer. And you get a glimpse of how Jesus took the promises of God and the prophecies of God, and he prayed them to God and he said, God, this is what you promised. God, this is what you've said. God, do what you have promised and said. Jesus prayed at the Passover. Jesus prayed for his enemies. Jesus prayed when in distress. Jesus prayed in the garden. Jesus' final words on the cross were a prayer. In short, Jesus enjoyed beautiful communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells you and I to pray, to pray for our enemies, to pray that God would send laborers into the field, to pray because God answers prayer, to be persistent in prayer, to be honest in prayer, to pray that we might avoid temptation. The point, loved ones, is Jesus prayed. And why might he have gotten up before sunrise? Found his way to a deserted place and prayed. I think one of the most obvious is distractions. You know, you get up and the house is already bustling and busy and, and you know, the coffee pot goes off and somebody says I can't find this and where's my lunch and you're trying to pray and you've got all these voices one of them is just silence and so Jesus before the household was awake they didn't even know he was gone got up and went to a deserted place to pray I think though also like any individual the events of the day before could go to somebody's head and they could get Jesus off course and so Jesus went back to communion with his father Father, you've seen what my day was like. You've seen what my night was like. 
how will you lead me today? How will you guide me today? Where do you want me to go today? The Lord was his shepherd. I was reading a hymn by William Cowper. What various hindrances we meet in coming to the mercy seat. Yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there? Prayer makes the darkened clouds withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder Jacob saw. Gives exercise to faith and love. Brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Have you no words? Ah, think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill a fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, our cheerful song would often be, hear what the Lord has done for me. I don't want you to take your days and compare them to this day of Jesus. I don't want you to think, well, boy, my, my days aren't that busy, or, uh, boy, I, I think my days maybe do compare with Jesus' days. That's not the point of the text or what I have done. But what I do want you to do is I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to hear why Jesus came. And I want you to know what Jesus can do for you. Jesus speaks with authority. Do you hear it? Do you listen to it? Do you marvel at his words? We see what Jesus has done. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, how he's defeated the kingdom of darkness. Do you know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? I want us to know what Jesus can do. Jesus can set you free. He can liberate you from oppression. He can heal your body of its ailments. Would you look to him today? Will you look to Jesus today? What does Jesus do? He hears your requests. So they told Jesus about her, so he went to her. Is there something you want to tell Jesus? Is there something you need to tell Jesus? He hears. And who could you bring to Jesus? Is there somebody that you think, I, I need to bring them to Jesus? Because Jesus can free them. Jesus can heal them. Jesus can deliver them. I, if word got around today in Parksville that Jesus was going to be at Barry's house, right here, right now, after the service, what would you do? Would you go to Barry's house? Would you go there quickly? Would you go there and say, I've got to see Jesus. I've got to hear Jesus. Here's my need. Here's somebody who needs to come to Jesus. I'm going to bring them to Barry's house so Jesus can touch them and make them whole. Do you know that Jesus is here right now in this place? Jesus is able to meet your need. Jesus is able to free you from oppression. Jesus is able to heal your body. As we sing this last song this morning, um, we've got some of our leaders here and others that are willing to pray. We invite you, if you want to 
bring a need to Jesus. Come. We'll pray for you. Nothing fancy, nothing amazing. Just in faith that the kingdom of God is here right now and is able to heal and is able to deliver. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this reminder of why Jesus came and what he is able to do. And I pray, Father, that we would not relegate the events of Jesus and the coming of Jesus to 2,000 years ago, but we will see that the kingdom of God continues to come now and that we are to pray, thy kingdom come. And so I pray that your kingdom would come in this place today as some come in prayer for healing, as some come in prayer for oppression. Father, would you work through the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.